Welcome to Startup Cornell, a podcast exploring the bold entrepreneurial ideas coming from our students, faculty, staff, and young alumni. I'm Kathy Havis, your host, and today we're going to talk with Natalie Egan. She's the founder of Translator Incorporated, a startup that builds diversity and inclusion software for corporations, schools, and nonprofits. We're excited to hear the story of how she launched this business and how Translator combines its technology with content and people-first facilitated conversations to help companies create a more diverse and inclusive culture. Natalie was also a speaker at last year's South by Southwest conference. So to find out more about entrepreneurship at Cornell and see the show notes from this episode, visit eship.cornell.edu. So welcome, Natalie. I'm so glad you could be with us today. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you so much for having me be here. And hello to everyone. My name is Natalie Egan. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. And as Kathy mentioned, I'm the CEO and founder of a company called Translator, where we build diversity, equity, inclusion training software for corporations, schools, and nonprofits. And it's super great to be here. So thank you. Great. So can you talk a little bit about how you came up with this idea and why you felt like this was an important missing piece of the market? Yeah, sure. Of course. So just by way of background, so everybody has some context. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I've been starting businesses since I was a little kid. You know, I sort of joke, I'm probably on like my 200th business. I've always started trying things, trying to come up with, you know, ideas. Where does an idea become a business? This is my second major venture capital backed sort of tech startup. I had another business prior to this and actually prior to my transition as well uh, called PeopleLinks, which was similar, sort of a similar business model focused on HR technology. HR tech is the category. I've been trying to solve problems and help people since I was a little kid. Um, And this is sort of the next manifestation of that. To give you a little bit more context on my previous company, which is kind of informs why and how I started this company. The previous company was sort of uh, PeopleLinks, which think of it as like a change management software company. It was designed to change people's hearts and minds and behaviors and do it at scale. And it was focused on the area of social media adoption. It was a tool set, a technology that was designed to help people adapt social media at scale on behalf of their organizations, you know, using best practices, you know, designed and curated for their specific role in their organization. So if you worked for Comcast, you would have sort of Comcast best practices and we would gamify the experience of, of social media usage, social media adoption. It was focused primarily on LinkedIn at the time, but it looked like a unicorn for a while. I mean, we profiled like a unicorn, I guess. I mean, everyone thought LinkedIn was going to buy us for like a billion dollars and turns out they did not. They actually shut us down. So we were, uh, you know, for the techies and the uh, out there, you know, we were using LinkedIn's APIs to access their data to drive our product. and. You know, at the end of the day, LinkedIn, you know, made a business decision to shut our access off, citing that it conflicted with their business intentions. And so, you know, that was a hard pill to swallow. Obviously, that very disruptive for the company, effectively kind of killed the company in a lot of ways. But it struggled on. I ended up stepping down as CEO of the company when that happened. I put in a, a good friend of mine and, and business partner, chief operating officer, also an investor in the company to take over while I focused on sales and product. And to be honest, to really focus on my personal life, there was a lot going on for me at that time. It was sort of the beginning of the end in a lot of ways of my old identity, et cetera. I stepped down, put in Kevin. That lasted for about a year, 
just long enough for me to rebuild the product off of Salesforce. And then Kevin actually fired me, <laughs> which, you know, getting fired from your own company by the CEO that you put in is never easy. A few months later, after I stepped down, you know, when I thought my life could get no worse and my marriage was, you know, had sort of fallen apart, like that's when I figured out my identity. That's when I figured out my truth, you know, that I had been repressing my whole life. I ended up coming out as a transgender woman in 2016. I reference it like I didn't know that. I had no idea. I had repressed that so deeply, buried below so many layers of masculinity. Like I had no idea and nobody, nobody else did. Either. It wasn't one of those things where people kind of knew. I mean, it was the opposite, actually. I became more masculine to hide that. And I had a lot of testosterone, so it was kind of easy. <laughs> um, but I uh, ended up coming out as a trans woman in 2016. And there's a long story behind all this, which I will give you the short version of. But kind of the short, short version is I, I experienced bias, discrimination, hatred for the first time in my life at age 38. I academically and theoretically knew what those things were, but I had never actually experienced the real sting of marginalization, not being looked in the eye, you know, not being taken seriously, refused service. You know, I'd never felt any sort of threat to my physical or psychological safety just for being me. And so that was a big wake up call for me. It still is. I mean, it's ongoing. I'm continually learning and effectively becoming more woke, like becoming more aware of the circumstances behind my previous identity you know, a lot of, lot of privilege, way more. I mean, I knew what privilege meant. You know, I sort of interchanged the word. Like I, I confused the word sympathy with empathy my whole life. And, you know, I would say honor and a privilege, but I didn't really know what it meant. Like I would sort of use the words, but I never understood what a privilege really was. I knew I had privilege. Just, I didn't really know what it was until it was taken away from me. It's kind of like the air you breathe. And all of a sudden I sort of became this like overnight minority, you know, very, misunderstood, marginalized identity. I decided I was going to do something about it. I mentioned earlier, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I love problems. The bigger the problem, the better. And all of a sudden I felt like I was being faced with like the biggest problem in the world, like inequity, right? Like the inequities of the world, like how do you solve for that? And I had this kind of moment where I was like, you know what, I, I'm going to try and do something about this. I felt uniquely qualified to work on the project, to focus on it, especially from a technology perspective. Like I didn't understand at the time, but now I feel like all this happened for a reason, right? But I feel like my previous company like set me up to do this, to kind of create this like change management software to change people's hearts and minds and behaviors and meet them where they are and get them to where they need to go. But instead of teaching them social media, we're going to teach them empathy. And it's a much more important, much bigger problem than trying to teach people social media at scale. Right, right. So that was very fulfilling for me. And I felt like I had nothing to lose. I had lost everything that I thought mattered. You know, again, remember, I didn't have my own identity. So I became what everybody else wanted me to be, which in a lot of ways, sadly, you know, includes my education. I felt like I needed an Ivy League university to meet the criteria of what people expected of me. And otherwise, I'd be a failure, you know, by the expectations that surrounded me at the time. It's a lot of changes all at once, right? Ever since then, I've been on this journey to becoming Natalie, which I oftentimes call my journey to empathy. And, you know, that same thing is what we're trying to bottle with SaaS, software as a service technology to sort of teach people empathy at scale. And I know it's a lot more than you probably were bargaining for when you asked that. No, but there's question. a lot. Right. I think there's a lot of background that's, that's important why to I know. Start, that's right. why I started the business and right. I'm happy to tell you more about it at some point, but 
Yeah. Yeah, that's a little bit of my background. Yeah, that's great. So how is Translator different than perhaps like another DEI program that people have used or training that they've gone through? What kinds of things did you really want to focus on so that it wouldn't be an experience? It wasn't fun for the people or, or meaningful. What makes it different? So just to, again, sort of help paint the picture and give a little context, like, and why I think talking about my previous company is relevant is it's very similar to my previous company, like how we got started. I used to work for LinkedIn and I became an expert at LinkedIn, subject matter expert at LinkedIn. And then I left LinkedIn to start a training and consulting company to help companies and ultimately people use LinkedIn, but it was a B2B service. That service lifestyle business consulting training didn't scale. We were very successful. You know, the opportunities got bigger and bigger. People keep coming to us, you know, big companies say, Hey, what you did for 50 people, we have 50,000 people that need that. We want you to build us product. And so, you know, LinkedIn opened up their APIs and it just so happened, you know, we sort of stumbled into this idea of building a product, a SaaS product, software as a service product. So that was kind of like unintentional or accidental. This time around with Translator, I'm smarter, second time entrepreneur. You know, there's pros and cons to being a first time and a second time entrepreneur. And as a second time entrepreneur, I'm a little bit smarter this time and I'm following the same playbook from my previous business. I was not a subject matter expert in DEI though, you know, like diversity, equity, inclusion. I was passionate about it, newly passionate about it. And I knew that we were going to go innovate in this space. And I knew that we were going to kind of tinker with that same business model. But what I did that I think in retrospect, you know, proved to be the right strategy was I started this business just, you know, kind of like on the idea that we're going to pretend to become a DEI training and consulting company but we're not really going to be a DEI training consultant. We're going to do that for clients, but we're really studying DEI. We're studying DEI training. We're looking for areas of opportunity and innovation to insert technology, to insert digital transformation, to insert you know, workflow that we can automate and improve and digitize. And you know, wh where are those opportunities? So we started that in 2016, you know, started doing consulting and training gigs and gathering the, the technical requirements for what eventually became the product that we have today. But it was a slow transition. So it's sort of, for a long time, I think we kind of look like technology-enabled services. We are doing training and consulting with more and more product over time. And about maybe six months ago, we fully sort of left the services behind it. It's really only a software product now. So, you know, to go back to your question, what makes this different than other DEI programming or training or content? I mean, this is very modern. DEI training at the core is archaic. It's, you know, it's analog. It was traditionally done in person before COVID. And the reason it was done in person was, and it was never very successful as an LMS or learning management software, where you independently go in and watch videos by yourself. The reason why DEI was not successful in that domain as an LMS kind of learning concept was because you needed a group of people to learn together, to ask questions and learn from each other. But the key, the reason you couldn't do that over a webinar very successfully is you were missing the interactive exercises that you used to do in person. So if I were to run a training in person before COVID, most trainings had exercises, three by five index cards and pencils and paper and post-it notes and stand in a line and step forward if both your parents went to college and stick a sticky note on the wall if you agree with this statement. Or get this, Kathy, raise your hand if you have a question, <laughs> which is actually the most absurd ask of all. Right. Right? Like you're teaching a highly sensitive topic to people that a lot of people don't understand. People have loaded emotions and 
all kinds of stuff. There's a lot of reasons people are not going to ask questions. Right. Everyone's too scared to ask a question. Yeah. yeah. So that was one of the first things we realized was like, we should give people the ability to ask questions anonymously in a live training. So one of the original kind of like technology components we built was like sort of a, a, an anonymous web app that allowed for you in a session to anonymously ask questions to the facilitator. So you could say, I don't understand, or I disagree, or I'm looking for a resource on this. And it wouldn't be tied back to your identity. Pretty quickly, we also started to add some interactive exercises. So instead of turning to your neighbor or stepping forward, if both your parents went to college, it would be swipe forward on your phone if you ever feel unsafe walking home alone at night or swipe left or right. You know, there's all these interactive exercises you could do on your phone. That became the beginning of the fully SaaS product that we now license today to corporations. Think of it as like tech tools for DEI trainers. So the people we sell to are the trainers. The trainers use our technology when they deliver trainings. We initially focused on diversity, equity, inclusion as a content category, but over time we'll add more and more content categories that have these interactive exercises, this anonymous channel, and then most importantly, and this is probably, and then I can shut up and we can, <laughs> but what really differentiates our training is that there's an AI, there's an artificial intelligence in the training with you, helping you with the content, helping explain the content that takes the burden off of the live facilitator who may mumble or leave out some important points. So the AI like kind of fills this gap in the training of delivering a very consistent learning experience with what we call core content. There's core content. We should not deviate from core content. I could probably assume the same. And 80% of Cornell's classes have core content, which we shouldn't deviate from. And then 20%, 80-20 rule, 20% is interactive. We need a live facilitator there. And so that live facilitator is still there in our training, but there's an AI that backfills you know, a lot of the more repetitive transactional content, which allows for all kinds of feature functionality, multi-languages, accessibility, data. There's so much data that comes out of this thing. So we serve that data back to the clients and they use that data to inform DEI decisions as well as to measure and improve, you know, cultural outcomes. Right. Doesn't your software have, or your product have some kind of a way to measure how well people are taking in the information and learning what you hope they're learning at the end of the training or throughout their careers, I guess? Yeah. I mean, that was one of the loudest, most important requirements that we were working against in the early days is we need DEI to become data-driven. Otherwise, people can't measure it. And if they can't measure it, they can't improve it. And you know, you get this sort of fatigue, right? Well, we tried that, it didn't work, or we don't know if it worked, or maybe we should try something else, but we don't know. So trying to give business decision makers the data so that they could then continue to invest in DEI and culture and things like that. So yeah, data is the core. That's probably one of the biggest differentiators is the data. So how do you measure success for your company and how do you, how do the companies that you work with, their trainers measure success? Because you mentioned new data is really important. It just seems like in this culture, or this time that we're in, DEI is so important to so many companies and they need to know that what they're doing is actually having an impact. You know, after your training or a year down the line, like how will these companies know that this is making a difference? What's exciting about that is that we're like just in like the earliest days of it. So we're still an early stage tech startup, just really starting to scale. We've done this without very many resources at all. Really haven't raised very much money. We're going to be profitable this year. We've got seven employees. You know, we'll probably do $3 million at the end of this year and we'll hire three people. So $3 million with 10 employees. The reason I give that context is A, for all the entrepreneurs out there, like if you can build without investment money, that's great, right? If you can get to profitability without investment, like that's, you're in the driver's seat. 
we have raised some money. We'll pay that money back. I want to buy my company back right now. But that's what I want to do with some of the some early investments. But the possibilities and the potential of the data, the analytics, the metric, the benchmarking, it just it's almost exponential. Like I could take $10 million investment and invest that right now in the analysis of this of the data that we're collecting. And we still have so many deliverables and projects to work on that we wouldn't be able to get to the end of it. We're sort of crawl walk run with our clients. We're trying to give them the data that is most helpful. Some of that's super basic. Some of it's like literally participation data, right? But that's helpful for them. They've never really had participation data before. They've never been able to analyze the questions that their employees have. Like they've never been able to look at the sentiment of a training, let alone look at things like privilege and marginalization at a global level for their organization. But I take the most pride in sort of being able to measure empathy. You know, like I like to be able to go back to the client and say, you know, we have incrementally improve the organizational empathy and the empathy of your employees individually by X percent this year. And how we have backed into that, like we could spend a whole workshop on, but like we're effectively improving awareness. Awareness equals empathy. Like you, there's a direct correlation. Like you can't have empathy without self-awareness. If you don't have self-awareness, you can't have empathy. You'll probably have sympathy is what you'll have, to be honest. But the more self-awareness that you have, the more you become aware of things like empathy and we can measure self-awareness because we can, it's literally right in the product. But it goes deeper than that, like in the sense that we start to get into a category that's relatively new called ESG, environmental social governance. This is a very important area of metrics, data analysis across environmental social governance, which you know can look like green practices for the business, but it also looks like you know social inclusion, diversity, et cetera. So I think last year we did an audit. And I think for all of our clients that were using our full program, they've been using our full program for more than a year, almost 100% of them, basically like 98% of them, were using our data to report ESG metrics to their board of directors and to their investors. So you can see quite a range where it's like at the most basic level, it's participation at the most high level, it's governance of financial fiduciary duties. That's great. So you mentioned that right now you're focusing on DEI, but that there's a lot of potential applications for what you've created to be used in other areas. Talk about what your latest is with the company and what your plans are for the next year or five years, or what are the things that you're really focused on right now? Are you trying to expand to more companies? Are you already thinking about these other potential applications? It's like I said earlier, it's just exciting times. We're really in a groove. And being a second-time entrepreneur, I sort of recognize the signs and signals around me. And you know, I try not to get too excited because you know, there's still a lot of work to do. And I don't think there's real risk to the business outside of executional risk, like which would be like you know our own failure to capitalize on this opportunity that we've created. You know, I don't think that there's market risk per se. I don't think there's competitors or anything like that. I mean, there will be competitors, but even if there were, like there's plenty of green space to have multiple very large vendors in this space. We could vertically focus on one vertical and just own that vertical and there'd be plenty of business for us. But yeah, right now we're really focused on scale. We're hiring sales executives. We're hiring, you know, to accelerate revenue and billings so that we can start to expand content categories. And, you know, we probably will raise money later this year, but we want to do it on our own terms. And when when you have ARR, annual recurring revenue in excess of certain targets that venture capitalists are looking for, you kind of put yourself into a category of, I mean, it's a sort of special place as an entrepreneur where like you can dictate the terms and and say like, we'll take your money and, you know, I'll take some money off the table. 
there was years where I didn't pay myself, you know, like I'm, and I'm, and I'm pretty under-resourced now. So that's an important part of this plan. But in the next six months, it's about scaling up our sales team. It's about dialing in infrastructure to support the scale. And then really starting to test these other, what I call content categories. And we have a number of sort of flagship or pilot beachhead opportunities in different content categories, like performance management and recruiting and financial literacy that we could go after. I mean, we even have a very large organization called Microsoft that is looking at using our tool to train people how to use Microsoft. It's an interesting world that's sort of opened up. And I think one of the things that I, and I would advise to other entrepreneurs out there is like, you have to sort of pick your lanes or pick your spots. We don't want to dilute and try to do too much. So we're trying to find the right use case to really prove the next minimum viable piece of the puzzle so that once we prove that, then we'll have options on whether or not we want to further invest in it. Sales is the focus right now. So let's shift a little bit and talk about your time at Cornell, since you are a Cornell alum, which is why we're yeah, so proud of you and had you for yeah. the... I would love to talk about your experience here and if there's any experiences you had here, any classes you took or professors or extracurricular things you did that you feel like have shaped you in any way as a serial entrepreneur? I know you said you've done that since you were a tiny kid, but you know, are there things that you did here that you also feel might have shaped you in any way? This gets a little complex for me. I had a great time. I love Cornell. I thought it was an incredible experience. There was a lot of shaping for better or worse. And you know, I think, again, this being pre-transition for me, I just wish I could have experienced Cornell as me. That's probably the thing that makes it hard to reflect I haven't been up to the school since I transitioned, you know, and like, I wonder what that's going to be like. I think a lot about what students today are going through and dealing with. My lived experience, it's not like I'm a student at Cornell today as a trans student, but I've read very good things about Cornell's support program for, you know, trans and gender nonconforming individuals. And, you know, probably that the marketing material behind that doesn't probably totally represent you know, the lived experience of the students there. Probably not hunky-dory, but it's probably better than a lot of the other universities that are out there. And it gives me hope, but at the same time kind of makes me sort of sad. And in a perfect world, I wish I could have just been me, like been born a cis woman. That would make things a lot easier. So if we play in the wishing game, it's, you know, you might as well, I might as well go all the way there. But in reality, none of that's possible. And I sort of have to just be in the now and reflect on and be appreciative for who I am and how I got here. And Cornell was a big part of that. I mean, I, I wish I was in the sorority system, but I was in the frat system and I was lost because I couldn't be me and I became what everybody else wanted me to be. And in the frat system, like, to be honest, like I wasn't being me. I wish I could go back and really experience the school as me. But I had a wonderful time at the university. You know, a lot of the connections I made informed my future years. In fact, strangely, I'm just putting this together right now. It was another Cornell alumni tech CEO that sort of was the trigger. They didn't cause this, but like Morgan, she kept her name Morgan, right? She was in a different fraternity at Cornell, but she transitioned after Cornell and I couldn't believe it. I didn't know them at Cornell. I met them after Cornell, but prior to their transition, 
very masculine, very presented as alpha male, like CEO of this like badass tech company. And they transitioned. And like, I saw that on Facebook and it cracked my egg. Like it was the beginning of me starting to go like, oh my God, is this who I am? Is this what I've been hiding? And, you know, so Cornell like continued to like shape me afterwards in a lot of ways. That's sort of interesting. I look forward to being able to, you know, give back and support the school as Natalie and young alumni or alumni and students and faculty, you know, who are struggling with this as their own identity or someone else's. I just want to be here for those people. And I wish people had been there for me. I lost a lot of years, like good years that I could have been more productive towards something else, I guess. I'm lucky to be here, by the way. And I mean, I'm just, just lucky to be here. Well, I think you have such a unique experience that could be helpful for entrepreneurs and other people who are trying to pitch to investors and just might feel like they aren't accepted. You had a lot of courage to kind of go back into the tech business with a new identity and go in these places again and pitch and, you know, have a completely different response, I'm sure, than when you were in your first company. So I think that that's all, you know, amazing experience and advice that can be helpful for all kinds of people. Obviously, your whole life has been an entrepreneur instead of someone who is working in a, a giant company for someone else. Or there's some things you do and some skills that you have that you think just lend itself to that kind of life. Yeah. Thank you for asking that question. I think there's a lot of unique attributes that maybe I have that help with this part of my identity of of being an entrepreneur. But I also, you know, I can't not mention the amount of privilege that it takes to be an entrepreneur. And I didn't understand that until after I transitioned and I lost everything. And I realized, I was like, wow, okay. So here I am. I've got a lot of privilege, like a lot of financial resources. I've got a lot of support financially through just my family. Like, so I have sort of a safety net below me, let alone the fact that I look like the market. You know, I look like the investors, identify with the investor. I have like the network. I can get access to people that other people can't get access to. But many, many people cannot become an entrepreneur because of the risk and their risk profile. But a lot of that has to come down to survival, like their kids. So I always had that safety net. And really want to acknowledge that. And not everybody does, right? So if you look at trans folks, trans folks of color in particular, like the cards are stacked against them in ways that I couldn't understand until I started to lose a lot of the privilege, but I still have a lot of privilege. I still do. took me a long time to realize I still have a lot of privilege. But I think aside from that, one thing that I've always been sort of very good at, which I don't really understand where it came from, is just modeling. Maybe it's just deep thinking. Maybe it's because I was trans and I had to think so much about like my world and like why do things fit and why do they not fit? Like I've always been pretty good at modeling complicated scenarios to predict future outcomes. And so, you know, on any given day, my role as the CEO is to synthesize tons of data and information and conversations and emotions and market trends and future literally like wars, right? To sort of think like, I mean, before Ukraine and Russia really erupted, I was thinking about that because there was tension building, but I was building that into my models around fundraising and financial stability, what's going to happen to the market. And like Osage Venture Partners is one of our investors. They have their Osage Summit and they bring the CEOs together. And we talk about things like, you know, this tension in Russia and Ukraine. How do you think it will affect your business? And I'm smart enough to not say like, you know, to be stupid about it, but everybody was like, this is going to be bad. It's going to shut down everything. And I sort of said, you know what? 
actually think for us in particular in HR tech, I think it's going to shut down buying in HR tech. I think it's going to cause a lot of challenges, but I also think that actually there could be some things that beneficial as buying signals. So those are the types of things I'm constantly inadvertently like working on when I'm not working. Like there are times when I'm just like, I need to stop working and I'm literally, I'm just laying there, but I'm still working. Vacation is not a vacation because I'm just working on a different level. My brain is constantly working on these other problems. It's a good thing, but it's also a problem because I can't shut it off. But it seems like it would be a really valuable mindset to have if you're in having a business, your own business, to be always yeah, thinking I mean, about Yeah, I think things. if you're not doing that, then you're not, I can't imagine actually, if, if you weren't, be trying to think 5, 10, 15 steps ahead, like, I don't know how you make it. Are there some tools that you use in your life that you've found really helpful, either digital or physical things that you think would be good for other entrepreneurs to adopt and that just have helped you? With your scheduling or your business or your thinking? I have an admin. Oh, that's good. <laughs> right. I think there's a real lesson here or like an opportunity for me to share something that works for me, right? Like I've tried everything. I've really struggled. And I've also tried half-assed ways of getting support from like an admin, you know, like a part-time person. They're either part-time because they're literally part-time or they're inside my whole business working for us, but they're part-time my admin and they're also supposed to be doing something else. And then inevitably their brains explode and it's like, you know, they just literally give up. They just say, I'm out. Like, I can't do this. And I was really struggling. Maybe two years ago, I was really hitting a wall and my co-founder CTO, Josh, was like, you just have to bite this and hire an admin and let's post and be very specific that they're your admin and that's all they do. They have access to my personal email. They can log in my personal email. They can log into my work email. They can respond. They can answer. They can archive. They have access to my calendar. They can schedule everything on my calendar. They, they do all of my, everything that would get in the way of me doing actually valuable things, even if it's just valuable things for my family, she does it because otherwise it's just taking away my time. So she's changed my life. I'm really terrible with the tools. I don't like texting. I don't like my phone. I don't like Slack. I don't like emails. The only thing I really like to do is talk. You know, I'm a talker. <laughs> I like talking to you right now, but I don't like writing emails. Well, and it's good you recognize that about yourself and have the, you know, the foresight and the friend to tell you you need to hire an admin. And that's made a huge difference. I mean, that's really smart. So we're nearing the end of our time. So I wanted to make sure that there wasn't anything, and there's a million questions that I could ask you, but I wanted to make sure that there wasn't something you know, that you wanted to talk about that we haven't talked about yet. I would just say for anyone that's out there listening, you know, whether you're a teacher at the university or alumni or a current student or an entrepreneur, representation matters, right? Like hashtag representation matters. Like that's one of my big sort of tenets. You know, this is representation, by the way. So thank you, Kathy, for having a trans woman on your podcast. Am I the first trans woman, out trans woman on your podcast? I don't know. Well, on my podcast, my podcast has only been out a little more than a year. So yes, you are. <laughs> it's our first. It's you and me. Thank you for that. Right, yes. But this is representation and we need representation. We need storytelling. We need diversity of experiences to be shared with us. Part of that's just showing up. I'll do my job. I'll show up if I'm invited. But I think in the classrooms, in our offices, in our workspaces, you know, we need representation there too. And I think that's what changes people's hearts and minds, you know, is to hear these stories, to hear my voice and know that my pronouns are she and hers. That is different for people in their formula of their day. And that's what 
starts to normalize the differences. And I think, you know, that's how we're going to win in the end is taking advantage of the differences of our people instead of fighting over them. Like, let's harness the differences and solve the problems that we have in front of us together. This is just one little small contribution to that. It's like these little moments of representation and that all adds up. And then you've got people like me that are working on, you know, bigger technology infrastructure things to make the world a more equitable place. And I think if we continue to do this, like we're going to make a lot of change and I'm excited to be a part of it. And, you know, I welcome the opportunity to speak with anyone from the university or the, you know, alumni students. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn, just Natalie J. Egan, or my email is natalie at translator.company. But I'd love to continue the conversation. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. Yeah, no worries. It was great to connect and have this podcast. Bye-bye. Thanks. To find out more about entrepreneurship at Cornell and see the show notes from this episode, visit eship.cornell.edu. And please rate and review our podcast by scrolling to the bottom of this episode and sharing your thoughts. A special thanks to Abigail Younger, my editor extraordinaire, and to Bert Odom-Reed of the Cornell Broadcast Studio.